Welcome to the FI Podcast, the place where we speak about all things accounting. I'm Dave Malthouse. And I'm Ben Bournemouth. From balancing the books to finding a balance in your life, we've got it all covered. So whether you're here for accounting insights, career advice, or looking after yourself while preparing for your exams, you're in the right place. We hope you enjoy this episode, and if you do, please leave us a rating and review. Welcome to this special edition of the First Intuition Student Podcast. Uh, my name's David Malthouse. My name's Ben Bournemouth. And we're gathered today because we've had a raft of students and colleagues that have asked us to please do a special on the post office scandal. So anyone based in the UK will know this is a story that has run in the news. There are parliamentarians, politicians talking about it, civil servants talking about it, accountants, we're all talking about it. And where we are now, beginning of 2024, I think most people in the UK have seen the ITV drama, which really brought it to prominence. Um, There's a whole raft of kind of panorama specials about post office scandal. There's many miles of newspaper columns that have been published about it. But Ben and I want to look at it from an accountant's perspective. So as accountants, trainee accountants, qualified accountants, looking at what happened with the post office, what maybe could we have done as accountants or auditors? And what do we learn from this to take forward to help prevent these kind of things from having the same impact in the future? So I'm going to ask you, Ben, because I know you've done loads of research. Ben, could you give an overview to the listeners about what actually happened with the post office scandal thanks dave so there's lots of aspects to this one but to break it down as simply as i probably can do let's go back to first of all the post offices themselves so we are talking about the role of sub postmasters these are men and ladies that have got a contract with the post office limited the big organisation with the big branding and the signage, the red logos that we are familiar with and are seen as a national institution in the United Kingdom. But these guys were running smaller town-village post offices. So imagine the sort of post office that probably doubled up as the local community shop. You could pop in and buy milk, tea bags, but you could also do transactions through a counter that were officially transacting with the post office via the sub-postmaster. So I'm thinking of drawing your pension if you were qualifying for a, a government state pension. Dave, you talked about traditionally even being able to pay some taxes. So I think about a vehicle license, gone into tax your car, but you were talking about even traditionally paying national insurance via the post law. And if we go back years, years from today, social security benefits of all kinds were paid out in the form of cash um, or or kind of they could pay that in the form of check, but you didn't have electronic bank transfers. And so post offices were a vital place where people that were in receipt of pensions could receive their cash. And it used to be every Thursday. My nan used to queue up with her friends outside the post office on a Thursday morning to draw her pension so that she could then go shopping for the weekends. And you absolutely right, you used to queue up to get your car tax there, pay your national insurance. 
if you didn't have a bank account or you didn't qualify for a bank account. And many years ago, it was very difficult to get a bank account if you didn't have a full-time job. So one way to get a former bank account was through the post office, through a post office account. Um, so post office administered all of those different things. So huge parts of the community. It's reduced a lot now, but historically really, really important places. So a few bits we will come back to, but we are talking about relatively significant amounts of cash coming and going through the post office till, the responsibility of the sub-postmaster. We're talking about these people being well-known, prominent members of their local community, which I think, if you watch the drama, adds a very personal dynamic to the whole situation and the scenario. And these had operated for tens of years. And doing some research, they were operating primarily on a paper-based system, recording transactions under a very paper-based manual system. So we now get to the turn of the millennium, when we were all thinking about how we were going to celebrate the millennium and that the concept of the millennium bug springs to mind. I had just started in practice at this time and we were worried about things at the turn of the millennium. Lots of organizations were going down the road of computerizing records and the post office was no different. So 1999, they rolled out the Horizon software system. This was meant to cover lots of aspects actually operationally for those sub post offices. We were thinking about a EPOS system, an electronic point of sale. So having a touchscreen or some kind of device in the post office that could manually key in information and that would record it. But we were also thinking about a stock control system. And most importantly for what's happened with the Horizon scandal, a link back to the main central computer system where things would be recorded, uploaded, and tracked. And so what was meant to happen at the end of the day, the postmaster was responsible for doing a reconciliation of the Horizon system. And this Horizon system would have said the amount of stock that was meant to be on the premises, but more importantly for the scandal, the amount of cash that was meant to have gone through in and out of the business. And you'll see in the, the documentary, the drama, that at the end of the day, the postmaster was responsible for getting that reconciliation to zero, to say all of the money in and out was accounted for, it all balanced, and they would then sign off that as a statement of, I am taking personal responsibility, and I'm signing to say my TIL and EPOS reconciles with the Horizon system. And I just think we should pause to think about the scale of this at the time. Um, looking at some information online that I found at the time, this was the biggest software rollout across all of Europe, not including anything that the military was working on. So we are talking about a massive, massive software rollout with lots of money and lots of time invested. Excellent. And that, that whole aspect of signing off at the end of the day is one that I'm very familiar with because in, a, in, my, in my youth, I worked in shops. And at the end of your shift in a shop or in a bar or in a restaurant, you had to cash up your till 
and you had to make sure that you had the money in your till that the receipt roll said that you should have in your till. And I remember, you know, at the end of the day, it'd be like, oh, you know, you're, you're five pounds short, you're 10 pounds short or something like that. So it's something that I, I have come across. It was always nice when it was the other way. Um, but, you know, occasionally you did have shortfalls in the till, which, you know, it, it was something that really taught us to be careful about keying the money incorrectly. Um, and the big one for us was always make sure you're giving the right change. Because if you start accidentally giving the wrong change, and the worst was when people gave the wrong notes for change. So you received a £10 note and had to give someone £5.50 change, and you gave them £10.50 change, suddenly the till was out. So it's quite a normal practice when you're dealing with those big kind of cash-based kind of businesses, is that, that discipline of reconciling your cash at the end of the day. And it followed that it was done daily, so there was a daily record of this is what we should have, and it was legally signed off by the sub-postmaster. So he or she was taking personal liability and responsibility for that being a true and fair reflection of the, the day. I guess it's worth at that point thinking, well, at the time, why would the post office be spending all of the money and the time to roll out this system? And I guess they would have been under pressure to automate processes, to use computers, to replace manual records, which at this point has got quite a bad reputation. When we talk about manual records, we talk about human error. We talk about the fallibilities of that, the fact we haven't necessarily got this record, this permanent record. And so I think they would have rolled it out thinking this is going to be more efficient and more effective at showing us if we have got discrepancies where they are being highlighted and spot those at the time that the post office could then do something about. Absolutely. If you think going from a manual system where the only way it could have worked would be the sub postmaster keeps a record of transactions in the post office branch and then at the end of the day cashes up to make sure that the amount of cash that they have on hand agrees with their records in terms of what's been received, what's been paid out, then there will be some return that would then be submitted to post office headquarters. So that could be daily, could be weekly, could be monthly. But the quickest way to submit it would be by fax at the time, or you stick it in the post. And it may be the case these returns, if they're happening monthly, means that the post office only recognised maybe things are going wrong on a monthly basis. So having up to the minute records of what's happening in individual branches will be a massive, massive leap forward. Save loads and loads of labour time because no one needs to take the facts off the machine to upload all the information, to chase for information from the ones that are slow to submit. All of those things go away. You get huge efficiencies and it should give you more timely, more accurate information. So with that in mind, I would imagine when the new Horizon system started throwing up daily discrepancies, to one extent, the post office would have been delighted. This is now a new system that's actually picking up discrepancies, and we're going to be able to deal with those on the day and ultimately hold people accountable if there are shortfalls in takings. So this very much then passes back to those sub-postmasters, the individuals that really we get under the skin of in the drama and feel very personally connected to now having watched that, but they were faced with a dilemma. 
if you are a sub postmaster Dave, at the end of the day, you close down your shop, you go and run the reconciliation report from the horizon system, and it shows a discrepancy, you've now got a problem and a potential choice. So this is, at the end of the day, you're working in your, your post office, you've meticulously reported transactions throughout the day you've done everything the way you normally would and you have done very successfully maybe for generations and at the end of the day this this machine is telling you you should have an extra 600 pounds in your till compared with the amount that you've just counted as in your till and so now you've got that situation haven't you where you're being told that there is less money there than the post office believes you should have Exactly that. And you are under your contract with the post office limited, legally, personally liable and responsible to make good any shortfalls that the system identifies. So now we've got the issue that we can acknowledge the shortfall Mm -hmm. and personally pay in the money. And this is where in the drama, you'll see a number of those sub postmasters put in their own funds presumably initially trusting this new system that the post office have just installed for them saying well i must have made a mistake there must be a shortfall i am responsible for it i'm going to put in money and if you think about it on a daily basis it maybe wasn't a big amount of money on a day but a day becomes another day and another day. And before we know it, we are now racking up significant amounts of money that that sub-postmaster is ultimately under their contract responsible for putting back in. And a number of them did, Dave, didn't they? A number of them put in their own money. They started borrowing money to do it. They started using friends and family's money to do it. I wonder if they were thinking, this must be a short-term issue. It won't happen again tomorrow or next week or next month. And over time, it builds up and they got to a point where putting in your own money is not sustainable if it continues to be asked for. Yeah, yeah it's, it's when you see it, you're kind of almost incredulous with, with surely people are not going to pump money in again and again and again. But, you know, at the time, it must have felt very different to how it feels now in retrospect, knowing that there was an issue. Um, and I think we'll talk about it in a minute, but the, you know, the the reaction of the software house when issues were reported wasn't maybe as helpful as it should have been. But you're right, people were putting that money in and then there comes a point when you run out of money. Um, but yeah, absolutely right. What were the other options? What, what were the other things that could have happened then? So the way I see it, there were probably two other options. Well, this is the way it's portrayed in the, the drama. Yeah. The second one is a way that you could manually, I believe, override the reconciliation to say there was a problem there. And you'll see a moment in the drama, if you watch it, where a a lady sub-postmaster does that. Mm -hmm. She somehow adjusts the system to show a zero reconciliation, knowing that it had shown a shortfall. And she then personally signed it off and closed it down, saying it balances, knowing that it didn't. Now, I think in her defense, this was only after a number of previous shortfalls where she had tried to contact the IT support to say 
It's showing a shortfall. I don't believe there is one. I've done everything I was meant to do, and I don't know where this shortfall is coming from. So that opens up the question to asking for help at the time. Then I think your natural reaction, Dave, would be, this shortfall doesn't make sense to me. I'm going to ask somebody else to give me some more information behind it. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I would have said should happen. Um, but then the absolutely right people that kind of covered it up and, you know, it, it wouldn't be difficult to say, oh, yeah, we've got an extra thousand pounds in the till and just type in an extra thousand pounds and oh, now it balances. Then the next day you need to type in another 500 pounds and every day you're doing it because you know it has to balance to sign off so that you can open up the next day. So I, I think, yeah, can very quickly snowball into a tough, tough situation. And ultimately, she was found guilty of a criminal offence called false accounting because she had, knowing yep. signed off a reconciliation, having knowing it didn't reconcile, but signing off to say it did. And I've actually done some research here, bearing in mind I've taught the law papers at ACCA and ICAW and never actually looked into this criminal prosecution of false accounting. Dates yep. all the way back to a piece of government legislation from 1968, so a very old piece of legislation, something called the Theft Act. And I'll read it to you. It says, where a person dishonestly, with a view to gain for himself or another, or with intent to cause loss to another, either destroys, defaces, conceals or falsifies any account or record or document made or required in any accounting purpose so that's effectively what they've done by covering up the shortfall and knowingly signing it off when you knew it shouldn't and didn't reconcile you were committing the offense of false accounting but at that point they had experienced lots of pressure and lots of banging heads against walls trying to speak to people about it and effectively caved in and just signed it off yeah the third option was to say no I'm not having this. I don't believe there was an error, or certainly I'm not going to acknowledge an error until more evidence has been provided. And this is where some of the postmasters really, really dug their heels in. Yep. That ultimately went one of two ways. The, the, the chap that the documentary and the drama on telly focuses on, Mr. Alan Bates, was showing shortfalls but refused to sign off and refused to pay any of his own money in until further evidence was provided by the post office. And at that point, what did the post office do? They terminated his contract. And you'll see a moment in the drama where they turn up to effectively evict him from the post office and close him down. And he then leaves. And we talked off air, Dave, about him leaving with some old-fashioned banker's boxes, big cardboard boxes filled up with his own records. And I think that's something me and you would do. Mm -hmm. thinking, well, I'm going to take my records because I might need these in the future if anything develops further with a prosecution. So, yeah, And it was his business. He, he was, you know, subcontracted to run the post office, and it's his business. And I think there's a very good argument to say that you need to keep your records for what, seven years in case of a tax, a tax investigation. So, yeah, they belong to him. And I, I would just, you know, clarify in terms of the middle case, the middle, the middle option, 
where people were prosecuted for um for for false accounting those those at the, at present and as we understand things those prosecutions are going to be quashed so though the, the the people that were found guilty um are going to have those those um convictions overturned um on on the basis that the system was not working and they were forced into an impossible situation and I, I think the very first part of that theft act where you talk about for their benefit or someone else's benefit i think you could quite easily see that this wasn't to, this wasn't done with the intent to benefit or enrich themselves or another party it was done merely to ensure that they could continue to operate their business it wasn't done with any nefarious kind of motive behind it. So um, it, it, I think it's yeah quite important just to to be to be clarifying that those people are, you know, providing they take the the settlement that's currently on offer, I believe, and some of them may want to fight it through the courts, which is absolutely their right, and get it overturned later. But those convictions either have been or will be overturned in the future. The other aspect are the people that refused to acknowledge the shortfall was their fault and pay money in. And that's where we end up in a, a civil case that the post office want to take them to court to get the money that under their contract they believe they are liable for on a shortfall. And this is where, and in the drama, it's played by Will Meller, former Hollyoaks actor of my youth, but a, a post office master called Lee Castleton, um, was taken to court by the post office for shortfalls that were unexplained of 35,000 that he personally refused to pay in, which at that point would have been a potential breach of his contract. So the post office took him to court to try and get the 35,000. And this is in the drama and in the reality of the situation where we get a very big David and Goliath situation. The post office bearing in mind they are a big, big, big multi-million organisation taking one individual sub-postmaster to court, the post office spent over 300000 in legal fees for that one case. And guess what? They, they won the case in court. <laughs> 300000 yep. by better legal counsel and better barristers, solicitors than the other side. So... Now, the poor postmaster Lee Castleton, not only has he been found liable and what now appears incorrectly liable for shortfalls of 35000 through the till of his post office, he's also legally responsible for also paying the post office legal fees because it's quite common in a, a lawsuit that if you win the case, you can get recompense for the legal fees that you've incurred to win the case. So he is now liable or significant amounts of money and at that point can only declare himself bankrupt which has got lots of connotations for him at the time and his future and as i understand it the the post office at the time and i believe they still have this power but i may be incorrect but they they had the ability to bring about private criminal prosecutions so the post office don't didn't have to go through Crown Prosecution Service in order to take someone to court to prosecute them for a criminal offence. 
Now, it's possible for any business to do or any individual to do that if they have enough money to do it. But the post office had special powers to be able to prosecute people in a criminal court. So it's not just the civil courts, it's also the criminal courts that the post office could pursue cases through. And the criminal side is where things get even more scary. So civil courts can award money and damages and ultimately you would be declared bankrupt if you couldn't compensate the other side for what was awarded. Criminal prosecutions, potentially you are looking at a jail sentence and a criminal record. And in the early stages, the post office won some of those criminal cases and such postmasters were and did go to prison for ultimately the crimes that they were convicted of at the time. Now, this portrayed in the drama and in the, the situation is now seen very much as the post office trying to show their authority and ultimately scare all the other sub postmasters into thinking, oh my goodness, I could now go to prison for this. And legal advice might have been to them, are you better trying to plead guilty or settle because it means you are less likely to go to prison? And that's a very personal dimension of the, the situation that was unfolding. Yeah, it was those settlements, wasn't it, that really got me that you settled for something, knowing you hadn't done anything wrong, but you settled for a lower, a, a lower, a lesser crime rather than the higher level crime because you, you thought it would be an easier punishment but um very very tough i thought very tough watching that knowing what happened to those people and um, so it was yeah quite scary one of the things that kind of really quite upset me was one of the the the, the lady postmaster it sounds awful saying lady postmaster but i think that's what what that at the time they were called um where she was asked by i think her grandson or granddaughter about if she was coming into school that day and she had to say, no, I'm not allowed because I've got a criminal conviction. I'm not allowed to come and be involved in kind of like coming into schools. And it's kind of that was the whole of that kind of the ability to do those things and see that aspect of her grandchildren growing up. She was forbidden from taking part in because she was convicted of a crime that ultimately, as we know, there was a flawed prosecution. So the scenario now develops and this is really the theme of the ITV dramatization. Alan Bates, one of the, the sub-postmasters that we've already mentioned, who refused to acknowledge responsibility and refused, but was ultimately then kicked out of his post office, started trying to see if other people had been affected. Because one of the things that was very telling when any of these sub-postmasters tried to talk to the post office, tried to talk to the Horizon helpline, they were very much told, we are not hearing of these problems from other sub-postmasters. This is your problem, very much individualizing it. And so they all felt it was their problem. They were completely alone. Nobody else was experiencing it. And psychologically, then you can start convincing yourself, well, actually probably is my problem then if nobody else has experienced it. But Mr. Bates was adamant that this couldn't be isolated, started looking around, started to contact other postmasters and very quickly built up a network of other people that were affected across the length and breadth of the, the country, 
Wales, Northern Ireland, Scotland, as, as well as England. Really nice bit in the drama, Dave. Do you remember the, the scene where they hire a village hall in the middle of England mm-hmm. to try and invite the people to come together face to face? And I think he turns up and um, his wife and another one of the, the people had made some sandwiches to cater for the meeting. And they joked that we've massively overcated. We're not sure anybody's going to turn up. And then suddenly cars start rolling into the car park. And before you know it, there is a group of people. And I guess on a personal level, the sheer relief of realising you were not alone in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. And so they start compiling evidence and use local MPs to also lobby for the post office to acknowledge maybe there needs to be a, a further investigation at this point. And that's where the post office do launch their own internal investigation. And we see in the the drama, a guy comes in as a very well-respected forensic accountant, one of us, an auditor by background, to do an independent investigation. So my understanding was he was appointed by the post office was asked to do an independent investigation into the horizon issues and what had been happening. Absolutely. And the thing that struck me seeing the portrayal was I think there was a degree of scepticism initially that he was a stooge that had been in place by the post office and wouldn't investigate thoroughly. That I, I was quite impressed with the fact that he did look like he was he was actually independent and was looking at it from an independent perspective and where there was evidence that there may have been an error with the system, he was prepared to look at that evidence. So I was quite impressed with what I saw there. I thought, yeah, that is an accountant that's using that skill of independence and that skill of, as we always talk about, professional scepticism to not believe everything that we are told to start with, but to make sure that we understand what's actually going on. And my take on it was very much called the bluff of the post office, who I think probably thought he was going to come back with findings that would justify what they'd be doing. And the more he produced evidence, the more the post office then, I believe, realised actually there might be a problem here and started reneging on what they had potentially offered. This is where... Postmasters at this point, and I think we're talking by this stage of a group, we're in, in the hundreds of postmasters that have banded together and realized there was a much bigger problem than just us as individuals. Their only option really is to try and take the post office to court. But what's the biggest issue, Dave, with taking an organization like the post office to court to try and prove and defend yourselves? Now, as we mentioned earlier, Ben, it's, it's the sheer scale and the money that they have at their disposal. When they can spend hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of pounds on legal counsel, if I'm running a local grocery store with a post office bolted onto the side, I doubt I've got the funds to be able to take that case myself to court against the post office. And the, the dynamic of that is a number of those postmasters by this point have already lost all of their own personal savings. They fear... I've just got nowhere else to go to get any more money. 
And also, they are now highly cynical of the justice system anyway. So they're thinking, is it really worth even trying to go to court? Which is a horrible thing to think about in a a democratic society that you lose all confidence in the judicial system. Yeah, awful. Really bad. But like any good um, potential person that needs money, you think about the options... Dave, where did they go to get the money in the end to take the post office to court? Well, it, I believe it was the campaigning that was done by the the sub-postmasters alliance and their kind of reluctance to give up and speaking out whenever they possibly could that they were actually, I think, on a radio station and a lawyer who was listening to it thought, I think they've got a really good case there and went to visit them and said, well, you could put together a single case where we bring together a number of you. And I believe if we can get a big enough case with enough sub-postmasters together, we could actually get the money from a finance house. So people will effectively lend money to pay for the legal counsel because they believe there's a strong enough case. And then if you're successful, then some of the compensation you're given can be used to pay back that financing. Now, I had no idea this kind of financing was available, but clearly it is available. And I think the condition that was put was you need to have at least 500 people to make this viable. If you've got less than 500, it's probably not going to be enough compensation paid out to repay the loans in their entirety and also pay any kind of compensation to the individuals. So then the hunt was on to make sure they could get 500 people, which they did get. I think in there, was it 555 people, Ben? 555 people joined the action. And the court case, and like all court cases, if you've done any legal studies, they always put the names of the people in the court case. So this forevermore will be known as Bates and others versus the post office. (laughs) Absolutely. And they were successful in their case. And the the thing that kind of made me a bit sad at the end was when they started talking about the money and there was a settlement that was offered, settlement was given, and how much did they were they actually awarded, Ben? So you're right, Dave, five hundred and fifty five claimants were awarded fifty eight million in compensation. That sounds good so far. Brilliant. Celebrating that. But after the legal costs and the repayment of the funders they were only left with 11 million to share between the 555. Wow. So it really did take an enormous chunk out of the out of the settlement that was awarded. It did give the um the subpostmasters an element of of compensation. Um but I think that anyone that watched the drama kind of felt that's really not enough. That's not really good enough. And that's where we are today, isn't it? Where where we've been over the past three months of the or past three months, past three weeks of twenty twenty four. So over this time we've been talking the government talking about increasing and enhancing the level of compensation, overturning convictions that were given otherwise. And I think there are about three different schemes that are available to sub postmasters at the moment. And they've always got the option to take their own legal fight, to have their own case heard if they don't want to take the kind of overturning of the conviction and the compensation that is on offer. Definitely. And I think the the case that we talk about, admittedly, yes, the money 
didn't compensate, but the fact that those people had won in court really justified that there were bugs, there were errors, there were clearly defects in the Horizon computerized system. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's the, the that, that court case, which then led to, you know, which was on the back of newspaper articles, magazine articles, TV, radio interviews, documentaries that were put together. The court case happened. They were successful in that court case. That led to more TV uh, art, uh, TV um, shows. That led to more articles, led to the drama that we've seen, which now has led us to the point we are now. So without all of those things, all that furious campaigning and that hard work, we wouldn't be where we are right now. So, you know, it takes those people to stand up and those 555 people who probably didn't get the compensation that they were hoping for, probably didn't get the compensation to repay them the value of what they actually lost out on. They were the people that helped push these things forward. By your effort. So there's the overview. Let's now unpick a couple of the aspects that are most relevant to our world of accountancy students and studies. So the first thing I wanted to pick up on, Dave, was the the clear trust of the computer system. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about Horizon being the biggest software rollout across Europe, excluding anything that's military. We're involving Fujitsu, which are, dare I say it, a, a tried and tested um, organization that have got lots of other government contracts in the UK and across the world. So there is an element of reputation that says, oh, this is a Fujitsu system. Surely it must be right. And it's something that, that resonates not only in this scenario, but in the wider world, that with the, the advent of computerization, computer systems, artificial intelligence, are we at the point where we trust a machine more than we trust an individual person? I think there's a real danger of that. And th there are extracts from the auditing standards that I was, I was looking at earlier that actually give guidance to auditors that they should trust the output of automated systems more than they should trust the evidence given by individuals. So that's quite a scary thing when our, our auditing standards are written, say, trust the machines more than we trust people. Um, now, I in, in my world, I, I've come across all kinds of systems that haven't worked. So first of all, I've had loads of spreadsheets that have been passed to me that have had errors in the formulae. Okay? And people have said, oh, I've done my accounts. Here's the spreadsheet. But what I've been able to do is look at that spreadsheet and say there's something not right here and interrogate that spreadsheet and work out where the errors are and correct it. And that's because I've got I've got knowledge of what that spreadsheet should look like. And a lot of accountants have kind of been critical of the, the sub-postmasters by saying, well, if they thought there was an error, what they should have done is kept their own records and then tried to reconcile those records with the post office records and ask for the information but that's speaking as an accountant. And most accountants don't go on to be sub-postmasters. I know one or two do, but not many sub-postmasters are qualified accountants that have got the skills and the ability to do that. Um, I've seen software companies that have told me the same thing that 
Horizon people were telling the sub-postmasters. So, you know, we started using a new piece of software about 18 months ago or so, and the software wasn't working correctly. It was had glitches. Um, it would do crazy things where it, the, the software would take control of the cursor and move it around the screen, and sometimes it would delete bits of text and things like that, and it wasn't doing what it should do. And we reported it back to the software company, and the first five or six times we reported it, the message we got back was, this hasn't happened to anyone else. You're the only ones that this has happened to. It must be your computer's that aren't working properly because it can't be our software. So the software vendors were, were saying it was our fault, not theirs. And we spent ages re, like rebuilding computers, trying it on different machines, trying to get, you know, trying to make the software work. And every time it didn't work, and we kept going back and back and back. And when we started talking to other people that used the same software, we started to get other people saying, oh yeah, we've got that issue as well. That's happened to us. And then they'd, came a point where the software company then came to us and said yes there's a problem we need to do something about it so they they turned up but initially very very easy and i think that most of us would be the same if you're an expert in something and someone who's not an expert comes to you and says there's a problem with what you're doing you're probably going to think what do they know they're not an expert they're probably just not using it right so it's for me really important that if you do see a problem like that, you don't just lie down and take it. You do raise the issue. Really important, as we saw, to have a network of other professionals in the same business. So if it is the case that you are concerned about something, do you know someone else that's dealing with a similar sort of thing? I love getting those networks of bookkeepers together in a room and they'll talk about you know, construction industry clients and everyone will know, moan about construction industry clients and the regulation and they'll say oh I've got this problem with HMRC system I've got this problem as well and sharing that knowledge can really help us to overcome and solve problems so that was the big thing that I saw now I take it forward a little bit and it's one of the big concerns I've got with artificial intelligence is we're just going to start trusting the artificial intelligence to do the right thing and if we don't understand what the artificial intelligence is supposed to be doing we could get ai that's producing any kind of nonsense that's not going to help us so i think as ai starts to embed itself more and more in the things that we do we need to be more and more careful that we understand what that ai is supposed to do so ben what was what was your big takeaway from it well, I think going back to the, the software piece, um, the fact that you're right, Dave, acknowledging the issue and how many people do need to flag a help desk concern before it becomes an issue or something that will be acknowledged. I guess then with my cynical hat on, I'm thinking, but if we've just launched a new system, ultimately people are responsible for having signed off that system for committing the money not an insignificant amount of money to get a new system set up and launched also the time maybe it's the perception that the system can't possibly be wrong maybe i am so personally invested that i just can't see any way in the world that a software system could be wrong or more worryingly 
am I so far into this system that I then and can't acknowledge failings because ultimately somebody's going to be holding me to account for the amount of money and the amount of time that's been spent on it. So lots of, of concerns around that one. Um, Dave, I think you were also interested in looking at it from an auditor's perspective. Exactly. That's something that I've heard lots of people say. It kind of, what were the auditors doing? Why didn't they recognize this? Why didn't they look into the system more? Um, in the, if there were these massive shortfalls, surely that will be reported on. Or even, you know, if people are pumping this extra money in out of their own pockets, how was that recorded in the accounts? Why didn't the auditors pick it up? So, I mean, I, I can understand people questioning that. But you're going to tell me something that, you know, the auditors maybe could be forgiven. Well, let, let's go back to some of the basic principles of audit and what we would teach a, a class of auditors. We audit very much based on risk. And we look at inherent risk, the underlying risk of the business, the organization. And actually, one of the big inherent risks at the post office would have been the fact that it was cash-based primarily, and there was significant amounts of cash being handled by individuals. So straight away, my auditor brain says, if I was auditing post office, I would classify those sub post offices as high risk from the potential that is cash. It involves individuals. We know cash is susceptible to theft and fraud. But we also look at control risk. Control risk is the risk being reduced by the organization, the business having control systems processes. So as an auditor, my next reaction is, isn't it great they've just spent all of this money on this brilliant bells and whistles system? Because surely this should be reducing the risk of fraud being able to be committed, prevention, or if it is, detection. And so I would imagine from that perspective, when it started throwing up discrepancies, and more importantly, when postmasters started putting in their own money to fill the gap of the shortfall, as an auditor, I'm thinking, this is doing its job. And it probably is actually reducing the instances of fraud going undetected that might have been happening previously. And as I think you acknowledge, Dave, while those sub-postmasters were making good the shortfall from their own money, everything would be balancing at the post office because we've now got this discrepancy covered off, it would all balance as an auditor. That's not now arousing my suspicion. The third aspect I wanted to talk about, a really basic concept of audit, is materiality. The size and the significance of any errors or transactions to the whole of the accounts. And, and me and you being the good accountants we are, Dave, we've just been on Company's House. If in doubt, go to Company's House and you can probably find out a bit more information about a registered company. Post Office Limited are a registered company at Company's House. You can all go on and download their accounts, annual reports, financial statements. And we just had a quick look, didn't we, at the accounts from 2001 year end. So this is right in the early stages of the Horizon scandal. How much do you think the post office were publishing as their turnover in the year 2001, their total income? 
See, I, I have no idea what that's going to be because I, I, do, I don't even know what they would recognise as their income because, you know, you've got all the money that they pay out in the form of pensions, but that's not going to be, they're not going to record that as income and then going out. They'll just be handling that. So it's it's going to be well into millions, probably hundreds of millions, but how much is it, Ben? This, this is where we're at risk of zeros running out on calculators, but it's 1.1 billion. Wow. 1.1 billion. So that's over a thousand million. Think about a thousand and then stick six zeros on the end of that. That's how big the number is for their total annual turnover. And we as auditors use turnover as one of our indicators of what would be material to those financial statements. We would normally consider anything from 0.5 to about 1% of turnover being material. So that means in individual terms, any one of these postmasters is highly immaterial to the post office accounts. And even if we were combining all of them together, they are then on the cusp of materiality. So I can forgive, in one sense, the auditors looking at the whole of the post office for maybe saying this is not necessarily material to the whole of the post office itself. On the flip side, though, I do think the launch of a new system would be something I, as an auditor, would want to ask and particularly have a look at. We know new systems are higher risk. I talk to my audit classes about anything that the business says is new, increasing risk, because we know when things are new, they are more likely to go wrong or not be used correctly. We also know the fact it's cash increases the risk. And all of this would be used by an auditor to reduce materiality to say we probably need to go and test a bit more because the risk is is higher. Yeah, I, I from my kind of recollections of working in audits, you know, that there is a tendency to rely on the output systems and there is audit work you can do with systems. Uh, without knowing exactly what the errors were in the system and where the shortfalls were, it, it seemed to me that the system on occasion worked well. And we know that there were kind of, I think, nearly 10,000 sub-postmasters in total that worked across the UK over that time period. And I, I think there's about 1,500 sub-postmasters that have come forwards. So the majority of them didn't have this issue. And so if you ran a load of test routines on the software, there's a good chance that the test routines come back and say, yeah, the software's working okay. Um, I do think that whole detecting a shortfall and correcting that shortfall at the end of every day that took place is almost covering up an issue. So the auditors are saying, oh, there's no fraud because you know we haven't noticed any shortfalls. Well done. This system has reduced the fraud that's taken place. We don't need to investigate fraud as much now really good job your controls are ace and um, but it was the nature of what those sub postmasters were having to do to keep their businesses going that was causing the cover-up so i i can see how the auditors you know could have been led down a certain path which caused them to not recognize that there were issues and as an auditor we would 
document systems and processes. We would want to know how the system worked. We would document that. We would maybe even have a flow chart. We would have taken some reliance on it being Fujitsu, a big brand name in the world of computers and systems. But I think one of the things that was was telling in the drama was this slight naivety or non-acknowledgement that the Fujitsu system could be manually overridden. And that's really the big piece of evidence that came out in the court case we spoke about earlier that really cast lots of doubt on everything the post office had been using in their their prosecutions. And so as an auditor, if I'd have realized, well, hold on a minute, although this system purports to be fully automated and therefore, yes, we should be relying on its output, once you know that people can go in and manually override transactions change numbers that then starts casting lots of doubt on the validity of the the system itself doesn't it yes absolutely and and again it's one of those things that it was difficult enough for people at the post office to find out this was going on um what chance would the independent auditors have you know it's a subcontracted it system when i was auditing businesses and they used say sage accounting packages i never went into sage headquarters and asked is it possible for me to manually override the accounts you know it's just something that i wouldn't have done so again i could see how an auditor is not going to be able to get to the bottom of something like that the final aspect with my auditor's hat on is something that we talk about called knowledge of the business and I think we've got to take ourselves back now over 20 years to think exactly what was going on in the world of the post office at the turn of the millennium and we know that their traditional business model was under pressure the advent of computers not from the horizon system but on the computer generation we could start going online to do lots of transactions that traditionally we would have had to go to the post office that means they are in a potentially vulnerable position the accounts that we found for the year 2001 actually showed an overall loss for the organization and so that says there is potential pressures over the business model their future income and so throw that into the mix as well. My sceptical hat is thinking, was there some motive from the board of the post office to try and show a better result? And one way to try and improve that was to try and get some money paid in from people um, who were making good the, the shortfalls. So I think that there's quite a lot of aspects of this that we could relate back to audit terminology terms, as well as just the the basics of analytical review and saying and something i've heard a lot of people on the radio say surely somebody must have realized that they had got people that up until this point had not been alleged of any misdemeanors suddenly within the space of a few years now we have got getting on for thousands of post offices that are having these anomalies these discrepancies did nobody do the analytical review and realise there is probably more to this data than meets the eye? Yeah, I, I don't know. Would I have ever, as an auditor, 
done a check of the the, the number of fraud cases or, or th- that have been brought against the business or, or brought against individuals. I'm not convinced that's a test that I would have I would have looked at. Um, and again, it's you know it could be put up as a success of what of the IT system itself. And I, I don't know if you remember this, Ben, but I know that the you're absolutely right about the pressure that post up was was under because. In the in the 1990s and the late 80s, there were lots and lots of headlines about kind of things like benefit frauds, where people were going to different post offices in different towns to draw benefits using kind of falsified records and documents. And having a system that means that you are unable to do that is a way of cutting that kind of thing out. So you could almost imagine one of the cases put forward in, say, 1995 was this system is going to stop benefit fraud from being able to take place. It's going to stop pension fraud from taking place. It means that if someone dies, their relatives can't continue to claim their pension at the post office because the system will block it from happening. So you could, I can almost see the conversations and the ideas being put forward, but then it goes too far. And then, and then it's it's causing the issue that we that we have at the moment. But no, I, I know, Ben, we are both kind of pushed for time today. Have you got any kind of final thoughts on kind of what we can take away from, you know, what is a, a you know, it, it's a horrendous, you know, situation that's happened. So many lives have been impacted you know, so many people have been damaged by it. There are people that, you know, haven't lived to see this where we are now um, and, you know, went to their graves thinking that they were criminals. Um, what can we learn from this? I would bring it back to ethics. We've talked on the podcast before about how ethics now underpins a lot of the professional qualifications and exam questions and scenarios. And just like I would teach a class to approach an ethical scenario in an exam we would look at the the facts first of all the scenario itself and you made a really good point earlier Dave around the need for having your own evidence we will see in ethical exam scenarios where you will quite often get a mark for saying make sure that you document written evidence so those sub-postmasters keeping their own evidence of dates, times of conversations with help desks, with emails. And actually you'll see a bit in the drama where an email is used as evidence that somebody did go to Fujitsu at a date when they were denying that anybody came in to look at the system. So step one, get the facts and document all of the evidence. Then think about the ethical principles that are at play. And we could cover off lots of the principles here. The integrity of signing off those reconciliations, knowing that they weren't true, but you signed them off anyway. The professional behavior concepts of the reputational damage that that does for you and the wider profession. So I think my my takeaway from it is, again, to realize that scenarios do draw on personal as well as technical concepts but to, to try and uphold those, those ethical principles of integrity, objectivity, professional competence, professional behaviour. I agree. For me, scepticism. Um, you know, don't always believe something that you're told. Make sure that you do check things out yourself. 
um you know the, the the act of signing something as an accountant that means something you know it, it really as a human being it means something giving you a signature there as an accountant it means something more um so watch what you're signing you know make sure that you are signing something that you agree with if not be prepared to question it and I, I just think it's so important and and I think that the the whole movement that was created by Alan Bates and others um is really at what is what at that is at the heart of actually uncovering what's here and bringing justice to people so having and building a strong network of people that you can talk to that will understand issues that maybe you're surrounded with I think is really important and that is you know making sure you get to know other professionals you know you, you almost certainly will do it in class when you're studying or you're doing it online and online classroom whether it's going to trade fairs exhibitions and networking with people don't be afraid to say you're struggling with something or something doesn't seem right in something that you're doing because the chances are someone else is having the same struggle elsewhere and the more of you that can get together then really the better and the stronger you'll be at trying to overcome those issues. Dave, thank you for chatting it through. I've really enjoyed it. I I I did enjoy the drama, although both me and Ellie, my wife, needed some tissues because we were both crying at the end of it because it is quite emotional. You do get very invested with the people. If anyone's listening, you've not seen the drama, I would encourage you to go and watch it. I think it's yeah. great. There's also a documentary You'll find lots of stuff online and the scenario is going to develop further. We will find out more and more. There will be more things unearthed as the, the inquiry continues. Yeah, excellent. Well, I've enjoyed it too, Ben. And same as you, I can't pretend that it was easy viewing or, or you know, something that's, you know, you think it was being massively entertaining, but it definitely was thought provoking and definitely raised awareness of something that I think is really important that we understand. So, Thanks for spending your time here as well, Ben. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the FI podcast with your hosts, Ben and Dave. As always, you can head over to the show notes where you can find the links and resources spoken about in today's episode. Please remember to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode and leave a rating and a review.